everyone, welcome to our podcast, Pedagogy Geeks. I'm Ryan Tusing. And I'm Arielle Weiss. I'm a dancer and Alexander Technique teacher here in Philadelphia. And I'm a pianist and piano teacher living here in Virginia. We invite you to join us in exploring the hows and whys behind what we teach musicians so that we can help promote the integration of wellness and musicianship. We welcome your questions and hope to inspire your curiosity. And we hope to support and encourage re-examining, rediscovering, and bringing embodiment and creativity into our teaching. I'm especially excited about our topic for today's episode on the power of the mind, because this is one of the key areas that I think Alexander Technique and your teaching in particular, Ariel, have most influenced me personally. <laughs> for me too, Ryan, talking about mindset and mental practice are essential tools to help musicians not only uh, to reach their musical goals, but also to reconnect to the joy of making music. So let's start by talking about what we mean by mindset and mental practice as they relate to teaching and learning. What do you think, Ryan? Well, you know, I've pondered this a bit and the definition that I came up with for mindset, it particularly is related to this topic, is a framework for engagement. And I would also mm. say that that framework can either be explicit or implicit. Now, I'll talk more about that with some mm. of our further questions, because I think that relates better there. But when I'm thinking about that idea of framework for engagement, whenever we're coming to any task or activity, we have certain ideas and assumptions that we're carrying with us, you know, about that mm. task and about the way we relate to that task. Mm. And I think it's very valuable for us to consider those things as as we're working on something, especially as particular as teaching music or making music ourselves. What do you mm. think about this, Ariel? Oh, wow. I don't know. I want to sit and chew on what you just said there for a minute, Ryan. Um, I'm thinking of a quote that I just found the other day and popped into my social media that the purpose of education is to change an empty mind to an open mind. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I like that one too. So this idea of understanding the framework, right? Understanding the context. Um, and in Alexander's discoveries, we might call that constructive thinking, right? So in Alexander's discoveries, what we understand, what we come to understand is how we are exquisitely connected, how thought is always connected to movement. And so you can redirect your movement, which of course controls everything. Uh, the quality of your movement impacts everything about how you feel and function. And the tool we use is redirecting uh, the thought process. Now, by thinking, I wanna make sure we set the field right away that I don't mean just some, some gray matter in between my ears. I mean this very dynamic process where information comes in and intention goes out. Yes. So it's this very dynamic give and take with all of my sensory apparatus, right? So I might start to feel um, more breeze and that may impact where I turn my body so that you can hear me, for instance. Yes. 
Uh, so all kinds of information, this exchange of information is what I would say. And um, yeah, I, I'm almost wondering if mindset and mental practice, I, I'm already second guessing these should have been two episodes, Ryan, but we will, we will forge ahead and see what happens. It sounds good, you know, and I think you're right, because I think they're definitely related. And when I was thinking about the whole idea of, you know, mental practice as it relates to mindset, I was like, well, you know, in a certain way, mindset is our mental practice. <laughs> you know what mm. I mean? And again, I think, you know, speaking of, you know, working with musicians and being a musician, I think there is sometimes an application of mental practice that may refer to a specific way of approaching working on a piece of music. But I think, you know, maybe mm. even more deeply and fundamentally, if we relate it like like you've kind of done to the idea of mindset, I think we might be able to uncover even more riches <laughs> in the process. Oh, well done, Ryan. Well done. <laughs> so why do you think it's so important to consider mindset? Well, I'm going to return a little bit to what I hinted at before, which is that it's implicit or explicit. Mm. And what I mean by that is I think I think it's probably fair to say that whether we're intentional about it or not, we're bringing some kind of mindset to everything we do one way or the other. So I guess in a certain way, not that things that are intuitive can't be wonderful because I'm that can certainly be great. But I think many times we can glean so much when we take a moment to actually consider, you know, what we're considering and what we're bringing with us to a task, because I think it can really, it can really help our awareness to be able to expand and, you know, already start to promote that wonderful idea that I learned from you and that I use all the time and love so much unified mm. field of attention, just ah. already in the in that process. <laughs> mm. I just had a lovely cheesy analogy pop into my imagination. <laughs> and, and I always hesitate to speak about things I know very little about, but I was thinking about gardening, which I know very little about. And I was thinking about how a gardener that knows more than me would consider the, the content and the, the makeup of soil before mm. you plant, right? So you would wanna think about how much sun you get as to what you would plant you would think about how to cultivate the soil right to have the nutrients <laughs> so so it's a little cheesy but i think it works right mm -hmm. that that we kind of want it like that soil is there whether you consider its makeup or not and the content of that soil is totally going to impact the ability for growth and sustenance right <laughs> so that's kind of like i think that's what we're talking about right is we're cultivating the soil, right? The background, the context, and that's going to greatly impact uh, how we function. Yeah. Nice. That's wonderful. And I don't, don't know of any gardener that could have put it better. That's, that's the Aww. perfect analogy. I'm so <laughs> glad that you, you brought that into the conversation. You know, moving ahead a little bit, why would you say you think it's important for us to consider, you know, the misconceptions about mindset? Like, you know, I know we've just talked about, you know, mindset as soil and the background for things. What what misconceptions often come into, you know, people's uh, practice as they're thinking about these things? 
I think the biggest misconception that I run across in my work with musicians, Ryan, is this idea of muscle memory. And sometimes um, I think that concept itself is uh, not conceived accurately. And also that there is a strong bias that the most important thing a musician needs to do is this almost rote repetition to get it in their muscle memory. And so mindful practice <laughs> that isn't done by rote, that doesn't consider the muscles separate out of context of the nutrients of all the soil <laughs> is way more productive and way more efficient. So that instead of thinking that you have to practice for a certain number of hours, which is what I run across most typically, is that people set a timer. I have to practice two hours, four hours, six hours. I once worked with a pianist that was very upset that she needed to sleep at night because really all she wanted to do was practice. Mm -hmm. I know, I know. So to me, that's the misconception that I most frequently run across and also most ardently want to talk about. But how about for you, Ryan? What do you come across? Yeah, no, I love what you've mentioned there. I think that that is definitely something that that definitely I've noticed that that comes up a lot too where it's it and what what I find really challenging about that assumption particularly is it's almost assumed that well the muscles are just doing this on their own and you know at a certain point your mind becomes completely disengaged and I think that that really does have a lot of impact with the way you know, musicians tend to approach learning a piece, you know, because it's like, okay, well, you know, I have to think about it a little bit in the beginning, but I know I'm doing really well when I can just like, not think about it, which not that there isn't, you know, value in, you know, something becoming automated. But I think as you're, as you seem to be suggesting the way that we get to that, and the fact that there is always a connection between our mind and our movement, I think that that would definitely inform it. It's muscle memory is the language we use, uh, but that's not actually what gets memorized. It's actually in your neural pathways. And it's this process called myelination that literally insulates nerve pathways that makes those pathways more efficient, like really good insulation, yes, will do. And so the fact that the memory, so to speak, right, what gets automated is in your nervous system, right away connects it much more readily to this process of what we would call intention or thinking. Yeah. So mindful practice people, it's not just that we think that's, you know, some morally high ground. It works better. It's how your system works. So by cooperating and understanding that system better, you're going to reach your goals more readily. Yeah. But go ahead, Ryan, you had another idea about misconceptions about mindset and mental practice. Yes. Another misconception that I've come across a lot is just like, well, I just need to practice more, practice harder. I just need to, you know, keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And that, you know, just more repetition, repetition, period, you know, is is the thing with, you know, mindset. It's just like, it has to be perfect. You know, there's this perfectionism mm. and this repetition. And I think it's all baked up into one idea um, that really at a certain point, 
I think really can hurt the music making and the musician, which is, you know, when we, we have these ideas that, well, you know, we just have to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. It can become a little bit obsessive, I think. And especially if we're not directing it, you know, in the way that you've already alluded to. Oh, Ryan, you are preaching to the choir here. You <laughs> just named two huge factors, right? You named work and harder. Oh my word. I could, I could make, that just my platform for the next 20 <laughs> years, that alone, and then perfectionism. And of course, those are quite related, right? Those are quite related. When we think we need to be perfect, then really the tool we're going to use is to work harder. And so, you know, I'm just full of cheesy quips today, but we've all heard it, work smarter, not harder. I happen to adore being, I think, perhaps the only person teaching at the Curtis Institute of Music that tells my students regularly, you're working too hard. <laughs> and they always laugh, which is also great. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so they do. They think they need to work harder, harder, harder. And it is hurting their musicality and it is hurting them. And mm -hmm. so this idea of take a step back, clarify your intention. Yes. You're going to get a better result. And to step back, you might need to go take a walk, right? You might need to go empty your dishwasher, <laughs> go read a book, watch a video. Yes, actually disengage because once you're fully committed into that perfectionistic work hard cycle, yes, you might need to come up with a fancy trick for yourself, right? So that you disengage from that strong habit to find a new path. So take a break, people, take a break, <laughs> re-aim, reorient, yes, and we want to hear from you because what I tell my students all the time is you will learn the passage more quickly. You will fix the technical glitch more quickly. No one believes me. I don't want you to believe me, but do the experiment. If you actually take a break, and take that moment to refocus your intention. That's what's going to get you there more consistently and more efficiently. But it's a hard sell because many of us, I'll put myself at the head of that class, <laughs> we're very committed to our working harder perfectionism. And so please have a sense of humor is my other sense of, is my other piece of advice. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you catch yourself digging in and working harder, you know, welcome to the human race. Many of us were taught that, so. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, as we, you know, continue to consider that, I'm really curious, what experience have been particularly formative for you in developing your mindset in teaching and learning? Mm. Well, I have a funny story that I often tell. Have I told it here on this podcast about my doing my taxes? You have told that amazing oh story. Gosh. It is so rich that we would love to hear it again, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I, think I think this might be my third time. I'm not sure. <laughs> now I'm embarrassed about recycling my stories. But the point of it is certainly apropos to our topic today. Um, I'll try to tell it briefly. But, but here's the thing, folks. If you're like me and self-employed, preparing my taxes for my tax preparers got to be my my least favorite task of the entire year it's it's onerous it looms 
it stresses me out. <laughs> and I usually spend a great deal of energy resisting, <laughs> putting off and kind of fighting with myself. You should work on your taxes. Yes. And I dread it. Yeah. So that's a very strong mindset. It's a very strong mindset in my jargon that I've kind of applying my parking brake on and resisting going forward. And so one year, several years ago, I decided to pose an experiment for myself. And what's really funny to me is an experiment I would often pose with my students. And I kind of turned the mirror on myself one day and said, what would happen if I made a pact with myself that I only work on my taxes for as long as I can do that comfortably? The minute I start getting anxious or frustrated, holding my breath or scrunching my shoulders, that means it's time to take a break. And I thought it through and I said, that means if I work on them for five minutes and I start to get stressed out, that's as long as I'm going to work on them. So I made a little pact with myself and that's what I did. I paid attention to my own comfort and to my own level of frustration. And I got my taxes ready for the preparer in about half the time that year. Wow. I'm still shocked. You know, I, I posed the experiment and I knew what I was hoping would happen, but I was not a believer until I actually did the experiment. And so I encourage us all not to know the answer and to be willing to try something. But for me, that was very powerful, very powerful that I not spending all that time fighting with myself actually got the job done faster. Wow. Not that speed is all, always the thing we want. I just <laughs> want to say that with my students, uh, there is a crunch often to memorize music. And so I used kind of a variation of that experiment with a singer once that was on the same train that I was on going up to New York. And my student, this opera singer, uh, was dashing to a lesson in New York City and was, she looked at me and she, she apologized. She said, I'm so sorry, uh, but I need to learn this music for my lesson. And she buried her head into her score. She was sitting across the aisle from me and was diligently trying to prepare for that lesson. And I very gently tapped her on the shoulder and said, would you mind if I helped you a little bit? She is my student after all. <laughs> and so what I suggested to my student, right? Because my student, look, she was panicked, right? It's not good to show up to a lesson unprepared. Neither you or I are advocating for that. <laughs> Certainly <But> I, not. <laughs> right. But we also know that life happens. And I know the, the workload at Curtis is they're trying to learn. It's humanly impossible to learn all the music they're constantly learning. And this is what I suggested. I asked my student, instead of only focusing on the score in front of her, was to imagine singing what she could see to the whole train car. And to actually imagine hearing herself singing it mm. to the whole car. So that's a trick that you were alluding to earlier about 
uh, engaging and enlisting a unified field of attention. So instead of only trying to see, I was asking my student to see, hear, and know where the whole space around her was because when she sings, that's what she's gonna do. Well, a couple hours later, I got a text from my student. Thank you so much. <laughs> that lesson went great. <laughs> and so that was, right, what did we do? We redirected her attention, her intention, and it surprised her that it worked well. I love to surprise people. But Ryan, what are your stories? What are, what are your experiences that have been informative for you about mindset? Well, so several different things come to mind, but I'll just mm. kind of move through them and sort of chronologically, you know, because I think they all kind of, you know, help to illustrate a path that, you know, we can all be growing. And just because we start with one habit doesn't mean we're stuck in it, which is mm. really good news, especially if you were, as, as you hear this story, you'll be really glad to hear that, I think. <laughs> um, so I would say for me, I noticed that like when I was in undergrad, I was working so, so hard. I was practicing eight to nine hours a day. You know, I was like so diligent, you know, really have to get this done. My practice, honestly, in retrospect, probably was definitely not as efficient or engaged as it, mm. as it has since become more so. But what I came to realize is that I was very much I had this idea that everything had to be perfect, that I had to really master it and it had to be perfect. And, you know, I had to stop at a certain point and really ask myself, why did I have this idea? And I came to mm. the conclusion that for me, I was really conflating my self-worth and my identity as being valued by my performance. And I think that that is just a really, for me, it was a very difficult thing, but I'm so grateful that I came to that realization. And mm. in talking to other colleagues, I've noticed that that was not just my experience. You know, many times mm. that's pretty frequent. So I, I would say in that regard, you know, being able to step back and, you know, of course, I'm in no way advocating, oh, the way you perform, just make it sloppy. We don't care what it sounds like. It's not that. It's not not that kind of an overreaction, but it's recognizing our inherent worth and dignity mm. as, you know, apart from this thing that we do or that we're trying so hard to do and get, get mm. right. And I think, you know, being able to step back from that it has really freed me up so much to be able to enjoy, you mm. know, exploring and making the music. And so that's, that's I would say, a starting point um, in my journey that was very crucial. And then another moment mm. that was especially valuable that I continue to, you know, think about every day when I practice is the idea that you taught me, unified field of attention. And I have to say, you know, people, please believe her. <laughs> it's really good advice. <laughs> I highly recommend trying it. And I will say this, as I have done it over the last year or a little over a year, I find I keep being able to notice more. What mm. I'm able to observe gets wider and it gets richer. And mm. so I would encourage people, you know, to totally you know, just think about the things other than just, okay, I've got to, if you're a pianist, I've got to put the right keys down at the right time, get the right sound and everything else. Really, yes. you know, notice the space you're in. Notice 
all of these things, what are your eyes doing? What are you, you know, all of these various tune-ins that you can do, all of those things I would say have been so rich in, you know, informing my mindset as I come to practice and they've been mm. really helpful for me. Wonderful. I actually love something you were just talking about and want to piggyback if I might, because part of this perfectionistic working hard uh, and doing more is I've noticed with my students, there is often this mad dash to memorize first is what I would call that. And so again, if I take you back to that story about my student on the train, this act of isolating everything as if we were going to memorize that score and then bring our attention to playing it musically or with feeling or expressivity. And I just want to be loud and proud to say that expressivity is not like icing. <laughs> if you put it on a hot cake, it will slide off. We want it baked in. <laughs> Full of cheesy quips today. Uh, but this is an area that often surprises my students that it's not just memorization as well. It's also something that I have observed when you're working on a passage and there's a tricky spot. I like to call those the rut row moments. And as an Alexander teacher, even though I don't read music, people, maybe I should confess that now, I always can tell when that more challenging part is coming up for you because I'm watching. And what I see is my students prepare with tension. What I see is my students prepare by isolating and making their world smaller. And the answer is usually in a larger world that's connected contextually to what else is happening musically before and after, musically what's happening in other parts of uh, the orchestra or your chamber music group or your band. <laughs> and certainly the purpose of why you wanna play that passage has to do with sharing it with an audience, which is another context that is not on the page you're looking at or the strings you're <laughs> boring a hole into with your eyes, yes? So this idea that as I'm looking at that music, I already know what I wanna say with that music or to whom and to whom I'd like to say it. So, Again, these are ideas that I, I have found to be very difficult for my students to believe. Very resistant to these ideas. Yes, I'll get to that. Yes, I know. I'll work on that later, is what my students tell me over and over again. And I gently, gently encourage and invite that experiment. Well, okay, I hear you. That's not the way you've been doing it. What would happen if? Right? You mixed it up a little bit. So I encourage our audience members and boy, do we want to hear from you. You know, I keep saying that today because Ryan, I'm anticipating this is our last episode of our first season. I'm so excited at the work we've done. 
And so I'm trying to get our audience to already think, send us some ideas. What should we talk about next? I don't think we're done yet. I think there needs to be another season, but yeah. So, but we want to hear from you about how these ideas might be impacting our audience members as well. Yeah. What do you think about that idea about mindset and expressivity? To me, that's a really key area that it comes up. How about for you, Ryan? I definitely agree with you. And I would say from my experience, also kind of referring back to when I was un in undergrad, there was this, this idea that, you know, okay, you must have everything memorized. And they had this thing called a note check is what they called mm. it in preparation for recital, which mm. I, I think it was a well-intentioned thing, but I think it's a lot, it's, it's largely problematic in my opinion, because it sort of implies that, well, first thing you got to do is just learn those notes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so it's like this emphasis on like memorizing the content without, you know, any expressivity or understanding. And I really don't think it works. And I would say I, in my teaching and in my own learning, you know, in part from learning from that experience, I really think about, you know, preparing a piece of music well as learning it by heart. I like that phrase mm. much better than memorizing because memorizing, I think that word tends to, for a lot of people, I think it, you know, they, we, we tense up and we get scared when we hear it because we think, oh, it's multiplication tables or something like that. And it's like, no, there, there is this emotional expressive part, which mm. by the way, read the research on learning and memorization, the more, that we are able to link these elements, you know, the intellectual, the aural, the kinesthetic, the, you know, just the different um, spatial elements, the emotional elements, the more we're able to bring all of those things together, all of those neural pathways that you were talking about earlier, the myelin just starts piling up, which let me tell you, when the myelin starts piling up, your performance just got better and it just got more secure, you know, it, because what you're practicing is going to be so much more deeply embedded. And also, here's the fun thing when we actually as we're practicing something if we actually think what is the content of this okay not just oh this is a c chord and okay notes are c e g i play that with fingers one three and five in the left hand and it gets a quarter note okay that's kind of a piece of trivia but what what is the point of that c major chord is it a c major chord that expresses longing is it a mm. c major chord that expresses joyous resolution mm. and and you know really giving it that context because here's the thing let me just be very blunt here it takes work and time and effort to actually consider what the mm. message of that is and let me tell you mm. what i would tell you i think it's time very well spent in our practice because <laughs> we're giving the meaning like you said so beautifully it's baked mm. into the cake this way mm. and it, you're not going to have to keep reminding yourself oh gee i'm supposed to play that chord loud and it's supposed to sound different than the other chord it's going to be there because you've already deeply processed yes. all of those elements and you know why you're doing it. yes Oh, Ryan, thank you. Thank you for speaking uh, so uh, much from your heart. And I love that learning, learning by heart. Is that what you just said? I just mm -hmm. love that. That's I'm stealing that. And I want to, um, I kind of want to give a little shout out to any Alexander teachers that might be listening to our podcast too. And if you're an Alexander teacher, that's not a musician like me, 
I want to help you feel confident that what you know will help musicians. And sometimes I actually think not being a musician, I help musicians more because I'll tell you why I'm a human being with ears. And when I listen to music and I love music, I don't get caught up in the technique of how I think something should be played. I don't know, not my expertise, but I listen and I listen with my heart. And so I can hear whether music is more ephemeral or more strident because I'm a human being with ears. And when I hear and see my student moving in a way that doesn't seem congruous, right? In good concert, in good collaboration with what I think the music is saying, I ask them, I'm like, hmm, this seems like a love song to me. And they'll look at me and say, it is. And I'll go, great, I can hear that, yes. And I'm like, usually when I tell you I love you, I don't <laughs> And I make fun conversationally. Because as human beings, we already are expressive. You do not have to be a trained musician to be expressive. You're expressive when you tell your best friend about what you did last night, yes? And so uh, getting people back to the roots of expressivity, it kind of helps that I'm naive because I'm not caught up in all those habits, right? Of perfectionism with music technique. I have my own caught up in perfectionism with my dance technique, yes? And I have a whole nother tangent that I wanna talk about, which is when we're perfectionistic and trying to get it right and diligently working harder, I feel like we're a slave to the composer or the choreographer. We're executing correctly. That's backwards, people. The purpose of that music that that composer wrote, or that you're improvising, by the way, this is not just for people making music from scores. Uh, this is for anyone making music. The, that purpose of that music making is to share it. It's a generous act. And so if your attention is only on a score, or only on your instrument, you've missed the point. So when we know we wanna share something with someone, we're automatically going to get more expressive because we've got our purpose on point. That brings us right back to mindset and clarifying intention. We just made a full circle, didn't we? Yeah. But let's talk about mental practice more specifically. What do you think, Ryan? What do yeah. we what do we mean by mental practice? I love that earlier you were saying, uh, knowing what your mindset is, is a mental practice. Brilliant. Absolutely. Anything else? Yeah. So, you know, as I was saying there, I, I do think that there's a sense in which mental practice is connected, you know, broadly to mindset in one sense. But I think there's also another sense that you're maybe leaning into a little bit, which is this very rich idea that that stands in contrast with so much of the way I think many of us tend to practice our instruments or think about learning a piece, whether it's from a score or we're, you know, learning it another way. And I think it's that so often we do it in a very um, intellectual way 
in without really regard to how we're addressing it intellectually like it becomes like all about sitting at the instrument or you know feeling it's you know all of that it becomes sort of exclusively related to the execution of it i'll put it that way and so mm -hmm. i think mental practice in the sense that i understand it is this idea that well what if you were exploring that music and trying to you know learn it about it to gain something from it and to understand it more deeply and richly by say for example just looking at the score or listening to the piece or you know engaging with it in a way that is maybe separate from the execution part of it from the the you know working on it you know in a digital way like if it's an instrumental piece or in a vocal piece maybe not feeling it in your voice per se not that you know we can't think about those things and incorporate them into mental practice because i think that can be a very rich thing as well but I think sometimes it's being able to take a step back and to just, you know, get rid of the medium for a second that you're using, you know, if it's an instrument or the or that you're singing it, your voice, being able to just step away from that for a second and consider the music and like process it you know, as maybe like an actor is reading a script kind of an idea, you know, so you're, you're thinking about, okay, what is how what is the part that I'm saying if I'm an actor, how does that relate to the rest of the plot? How does this character relate to that? And then, you know, to to join into that beautiful discussion that you brought up earlier about your story with the student on the train, and helping them to think, oh, where is this music going? You're you're going to be sharing this with the whole train car. Or, oh, how would this feel in your voice if you're doing it? So I think it's this way of considering it. And, you know, one thing that just popped into my head that I think sums it up better than all of this that I've just been saying is this wonderful idea from the composer and pianist Franz Liszt. He said, think 10 times, play once. Hmm. And I think that maybe that gets to the heart of it. You know, it's not that we're doing this mental practice completely exclusive from, you know, sitting at our instrument and working on it. But I think it's the real value of not going to our instrument and just saying, OK, I've just got to press the right buttons, got to get them in time, make sure it's accurate, all that. I think it's a way of, you know, stepping back, considering the content and thinking of practicing, you know, a more unified field of attention, you know, which maybe you should talk a little bit more about that, you know, because I think that's, I think that's all wrapped up into the idea of mental practice. I think you're right. And I'm actually making a new connection for myself as we speak, Ryan, that I think part of what we can do with, with what we would call mental practice is rooted in what you keep using this word execution. No one wants to hear executed music. I don't care what genre, we don't want to hear you execute, right? <laughs> we don't want to hear correct music either, right? <laughs> we want to hear the humanity in, in your music, which might have plenty of mistakes, by the way. Not that I'm advocating that we want mistakes, but I think that's part of that whole perfectionist. I think we have to do an episode on perfectionism. I think we do too. <laughs> it's a separate episode. There's lots to say about that. But but when we get away from this idea of my purpose isn't to execute, right? So that's that coming back to clarifying my purpose. My purpose is to share. And the minute I want to share, I'm going to get more expressive. Yes. 
And by the way, I'm going to enjoy it more. Right? Who the heck wants to execute anything? <laughs> feels like someone's head's going to come. Through. I know. Right? I'm picturing guillotines <laughs> and Marie Antoinette and not good. <laughs> no, it's not very pleasant. Right. So um, this idea of kind of a multi-sensory practice so that, again, it's not my eyes and my fingers. Right. So how do you practice with your heart? Well, maybe you listen to the music and see how it makes you feel. I love that my daughter started playing piano when she was eight. And her first lesson, her very first lesson, her teacher played a piece of music and asked my daughter, how does that make you feel? I loved that she started her musical studies knowing that music has an emotional component. I loved that. So... I think sometimes the further we dive into any technique, the more disconnected we get from our humanity, sadly. And that, folks, doesn't make better music and also can certainly lead to injury. And neither one of which I hope are your goals. And so how do we bring that ourselves back into the music is with all of our senses. So for mental practice, for me, that's really about clarifying your intention. So if you start executing, yes, and you just keep executing, you'll work really hard and maybe you'll achieve your goal or not, but what you're going to end up with is execution. And if you take that time to really focus your intention, what is it about this music that you like? What do you want to bring out? Um, and so I'll get my students uh dancing, <laughs> right? Or if it's a particular rhythm that, that they keep tripping over, uh, I'll ask them to snap it, say it, sing it, uh, stamp it. You know, how do you get that in your body in different ways uh, so that it becomes yours, right? And then why is the rhythm like that? You know, acceleration, right? Is often because you're excited, right? Again, going back to being a human being with ears, <clears throat> and conversationally, right? Or why do things decelerate? Well, is it coming to a rest? Or is it slowing down because it's sad that we'll have a different feeling, right? <laughs> so again, if we come back to that purpose of what we're sharing to whom we're sharing, I think that will help clarify a lot of those things. And with a sense of play. People, we don't execute music, we play music. But man, do I love to remind musicians about that because most of you have forgotten that. Mm -hmm. True. <laughs> yes. I so think that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing that you mentioned. And if I may just add this, I, I think what I found, you know, in exploring these ideas that you've mentioned is that it's, it can sometimes seem to people that, oh, well, you know, we're just, we're just concerned about playing it and making an expressive mess, you know, with the music. That's not it at all. But what is so interesting about this, and I can, I shared this from my personal experience, you know, feel free to try it and explore as we always encourage. But what I have found is that when we are approaching music in this way, or when I'm approaching music in this way, I find that then I am much more free and available 
to notice the details of the craft of playing the instrument. And I'm able to relate those to the sharing the message of the music and to getting that across. And the individual parts of it start to have more significance, which makes them more memorable, which makes them easier to execute in a certain sense. And I use the word execute again, not execute, makes it easier <laughs> to play. You know, it's a habit, yeah. I suppose. But I would say really, you know, framing it in such a way that these ideas of, you know, playing beautifully with technical prowess is not different from, you know, playing expressively. Ideally, in all great music making, there's some relationship between the two. Oh, and actually, <clears throat> I'm so glad you said that. I feel like we're back at the um, question about misconceptions is I, I think you're really hitting on something important here about the resistance, right? To like consider expressivity soon in the process of learning a piece or learning to play a piece is that there's an assumption uh, that if you concentrate or consider expressivity, it will take you away from accuracy. Mm -hmm. And I just wanna say uh, as a lay person, anecdotally, it's not what I find to be true. And I don't find that to be true with remarkable consistency. What do I mean? I'll flip that point over. When you consider the expressivity, it will up your accuracy almost every time because the specificity of that accuracy has a purpose. Yes. <laughs> and the purpose is to express something. Please let it be that simple, people. So when you get really clear, if you're going faster because you're excited or are you panicked, if you understand why you're accelerating, it will help you hit those notes more accurately along the way. If you know where you're going, if you're trying to, I have this analogy that I use in my teaching about crossing a stream. And if you can imagine uh, jumping from rock to rock to cross a stream. If you only consider one rock at a time, you're pretty sure going to fall in that stream. It's not going to work. If you know that the end of the, the other bank is over there and you know where that is as you look down and as you consider your path, you are much more likely to hit the rocks you want to hit and land safely on the other bank. <laughs> and music Beautiful. making isn't about safety and falling in the river, but there is a good analogy there, I think. <laughs> there is. Yeah. And I would say some people are going to make that connection closer than others. So <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. And so um, this idea that you that the only productive practice is is the one, you know, singing or playing a piece of music just isn't true. And there's a lot of scientific research about this, especially about mirror neurons. And, you know, I know there's one study they did with basketball players doing free throws. And, you know, there's a lot of repetition. Basketball players have to be able to throw their free throws and they all have to be able to do that, right? <clears throat> if I understand the game correctly. And what they did was they had uh, basketball players practice by just imagining the ball going in the basket. And they increased their ability to throw that free throw consistently just as much as the person that actually threw the ball a hundred times. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> Let that sink in. And so we don't trust that because we've been taught that we just have to work harder and more and more and more and more. But you need to 
consider folks the quality of that repetition. And that's the thing we don't teach people that we want to talk about today. Yes. Yes. Quality. And we're artists like, hello, music is about artistry, not execution. (laughs) And so I, one of my favorite tricks of the trade is to ask uh, my students that are musicians when they're playing a piece of music. Uh, I use a trick that I learned from actors and how actors train. Because if you talk to an actor about the scene that they're playing, they will not start telling you the words of the script. It's not how they train. They will start telling you about who they are and where they were born and what clothes they're wearing and what kind of shoes they have on and what is there a carpet underneath them or hardwood floor and are they in a floral wallpapered foyer or are they on a battlefield? They know a lot about their, they call it their given circumstances. And when I ask musicians to imagine, mm, when I ask them to imagine where that piece of music might be taking place, is it on a battlefield? Is it in a garden? Is it in a boudoir? Yes. And place it somewhere and then ask them to actually see that environment in their imagination and feel that environment. Is there a breeze? Is there grass under their feet? Yeah. What am I doing? Well, I'm using a trick to get their unified field of attention, Mm -hmm. to get them relating to that music with all of their senses. And it's a lovely trick. It, it, it helps my students. Uh, Oftentimes the music gets more accurately played but always more with feeling. And that's something I respond to right away because after all, I'm a human being with ears and that's who you're playing music for people, right? That's who you're playing music for. What about you, Ryan? Do you have tricks of the trade to help people with mindset and mental practice? You know, I do. One of my very favorite tricks, it it sounds very backwards, I'm sure, is especially when I have a student that is you know, very much tending toward perfectionism. And at a certain point, I maybe sense them becoming a little frustrated that they can't get this spot quite like they want it. And I start noticing that a lot of times what I'll do, I will just pause for a second, first of all. And then we'll, then mm-hmm. I'll be like, well, what are you, what kind of a sound do you want there? What is this expressing? You know, maybe it's a place where it's not quite going as fast as they want. What would happen if you just, you know, played some notes that were that fast and you just express that idea? Doesn't matter what notes you use, I don't care. And if there's a large leap, hit any key on the keyboard or somewhere off the keyboard, doesn't matter. You know, and like experimenting with this and just like getting into the spirit of it. And doing that a few times maybe, doesn't often take more than once or twice to be honest, but a lot of times they'll do that and then we might revisit the passage and what often happens with a fair amount of consistency Mm. is they're able to come to that passage and all of a sudden they're able to play it and they're Mm. able to express something with it and the other thing that i share with them in this especially with leaps on the piano because sometimes pianists Mm -hmm. are very very afraid of leaps not (laughs) only instrumentalists or singers either not just pianists (laughs) see there we go (laughs) yeah exactly and what what's really interesting is when you're able to like 
know, take it apart, understand why it's doing it and have a sense of that you can like make that movement, even if it's not on the specific notes, you're able mm. then to come back and and try it in the specific place. It, work, it tends to work better. And here's the other thing I tell students in that situation, especially with leaps. Sometimes when we're freeing things up and we're not locking down our coordination, guess what? The first couple times we're working on a leap, we might not make it. And guess what? I say, oh, that is the best sign you could possibly making. And I'll tell you why. Nice. You're not trying to micromanage it and you're letting the movement happen. You're letting your intention for the sound nice. and the expression happen. And so it's really been fascinating for me to see how that has helped so many students. All of a sudden, they're less frustrated and they're able to get so much closer mm. to the result that they're wanting. And I, so that's that's one that I would encourage, you know, people to try if they're if they're having students that are stuck in a place like that. Yeah. Oh, that was lovely. Thank you for that, Ryan. And you know, of course, you used one of my favorite words as an Alexander teacher: pause. Right. So those moments of frustration, those moments of it's not going the way you want, these, these are the moments as an Alexander teacher that I see my students tighten and compress and put more effort, almost unilaterally. That is the strategy when things aren't going well. And so that pause, right? Not to judge and be down on yourself, but actually step back and think of another pathway. You know, for me, that is the analogy of you'll see someone fussing at a locked door and picking at it and cussing at it and working hard. And I'm like, oh, try the next door down the hallway <laughs> might be open into the same room. Yes. So that pause, <clears throat> that stepping back, like, where is the play? What else could I do? Could I step the pattern? Could I find that emotion conversationally? Oh, this is jubilant music. And, you know, I, again, because I'm a lay person and I don't know, sometimes I'm just freer to play, right? I'm freer to play and ask questions. But people, you have an imagination in there. Use it. Yes. And that pausing gives you a moment to reframe. And that's that reorientation, which is aiming your intention. And your practice and your playing will always go better when you do that. Always, always. So I often will ask, these are tricks of the trade that, that I'm sure I did not make up, <clears throat> but if a passage isn't going well, I'll ask someone to put their instrument down and I'll ask them to sing it, right? I'll ask them to sing it. That's one way of clarifying it. Yes, or speak it. If it's a singer, sometimes I just ask them to speak it or I'll ask them to make up words and tell me what the story is about <laughs> or I'll ask them to make up a gesture. Yes. So how do we get this in our whole self, in our movement, in our imagination, right? And I can, if I can, I had a, a dance teacher actually years ago. Uh, so I want to give a little shout out to Joan Wiegers because she said to me once, <clears throat> if you can rehearse this dance that we're teaching and learning together, if you can do it in your bathtub as you shower, you know it. <laughs> so if you can sing a piece of music as you walk down the street or as you drive your car, that's when you know that music, right? You don't have to have your instrument in your hand. 
You don't have to. Yeah, so rich. And it reminds me of something that, that, you know, very much, I think, connects to that idea. And it's that when we're thinking about mindset and we're thinking about mental practice and we're thinking about, okay, why are we even talking about this? The reason is this, music always, I, I think that's fair to say, always comes out better when it's coming from the inside out. Mm. And the whole purpose of all of this is thinking, how do we let the music come from the inside out? How is it mm. something that we're sharing from the inside instead of it being something that we're just like, doing and executing mm. and i think i think that that's you know a theme that i've seen emerge you know in our discussion yes and the word impose comes up for me oh yes. how do we not impose music but how do we find music mm -hmm. right how do we share music yeah well we're almost ready to come for a landing but i'm realizing we haven't mentioned one very practical thing about mental practice which is that this is a great underutilized tool when musicians are injured mm -hmm. because being injured is so challenging. It's frightening. It's frustrating, right? No musician wants to be injured. Uh, but a lot of times what I see, Ryan, is that when musicians are injured, they're, they're frozen. They're so fearful that this could be the end of their career. If I get really histrionic for a moment, but that's where my students are going. They're worried about that. And what happens is when they're told they can't play, they just disengage, they bail. And that ups their anxiety in my experience. And so this knowing that you can do really rich, productive practice, that actually that break with mental practice is probably gonna get you further then if you hadn't taken that break, again, it's hard to trust, please don't believe me, but it's an important skill to help fill out your toolkit. And certainly one you wanna use, even if you're not injured, if you're feeling a little iffy, pull out the mental track, uh, the mental practice skill, folks. It's, it's super important. But I think that's all we have for today. Any closing thoughts, Ryan? No, I think I think that that's that's summed it up nicely. Okay. Well, I do want to take this opportunity to thank our listeners for joining us today to explore how we think about teaching and learning. And today's episode, as I mentioned earlier, was our sixth and final episode of our first season of Pedagogy Geeks. Congrats, Ryan. We did it. <laughs> but we'd love to hear from you, our audience, about your experiences. We'd love to hear your questions about how embodiment and mindset impacts your teaching and music making. And please send us your ideas for topics for our next season of Pedagogy Geeks. You can send them to us by email at pedagogygeeks at gmail.com. Thank you.